You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 5th of September 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. The government has concluded that the two individuals named by the police and CPS are officers from the Russian Military Intelligence Service, also known as the GRU. Russia, as is traditional, denies everything. My guests, Daniela Pelled and Stephen Diel, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including one German company's suggestion that its staff stand up to fascists, Uber's addition of an or-else provision to its terms of service, and a cap on tourist numbers in one of the last places you'd reckon there'd be a crowd. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Daniela Pelled, Managing Editor at the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, and Stephen Diel, Writer, Broadcaster and Russia Analyst. Welcome both. And we start here in the UK, where authorities have named the two men they suspect of carrying out the attempted assassination of former Russian spy Sergei Skripal in Salisbury in March. Mr Skripal and his daughter, Yulia, were fortunate to survive contact with a nerve agent known as Novichok. A police officer who responded to the incident was also poisoned, mercifully non-fatal. Two other people, both British citizens, came into contact with the same substance in June. One died. The suspects have been named as Alexander Petrov and Ruslan Boshirov. Possibly not what it says on their birth certificates. Both are said to be officers in the GRU, Russia's military intelligence. Um, Stephen, Russia analyst that you are, Russia denies absolutely everything, so case closed there, nothing to do with Russia. They would say that, wouldn't they? Indeed, Um, and they have. And they have, and of course... As ever, they say, where's the evidence? Well, actually, now there's an awful lot of evidence, you know, even down to the fact that the, uh, the, the unfortunate couple who a couple of months later were poisoned, you know, they've even, even said how they found it, that uh, the substance had been put into a fake. Are we allowed to make an advert? Uh, please. Um, yeah. So Nina Ricci um, perfume bottle in a fake Nina Ricci perfume box. Uh, and presumably what had happened after the uh, initial poisoning of the Skripals, uh, these two guys had thought, oh, we better get rid of this stuff. And it turns out they chucked it into a, a, a clothes bank. Um, in many places in this country, we have places where if you've got clothes you don't need anymore, you can put them or shoes or whatever that they can be used again. Um, and they threw it in there. Well, it seems that this unfortunate woman who then subsequently died was going through this clothes bank and found what she thought was a bottle of perfume and sprayed it on her wrists. And, of course, it wasn't perfume, it was Novichok. Uh, and that's how she died. Um, so, you know, there is so much evidence there. Uh, and um, whilst Russian politicians are not always the best at, um, at, at telling the truth, and indeed you could say all politicians don't always tell the truth, but when the Prime Minister of Britain stands up in Parliament and names names and says what's happened. Um, There's got to be quite a lot of evidence behind it. Uh, Daniela, does this revelation or this announcement by uh, Theresa May make the relationship between the United Kingdom and Russia significantly more weird than it already was? Well, I think one of the arguments that sceptics were making was that why would Russia do something so blatant and uh, try and murder people in, in broad daylight in a, in a British provincial town. And uh, what's emerged from the evidence 
makes that even more blatant. I mean, we understand that these two chaps just took a Aeroflot flight straight from Moscow to Gatwick. No, not even bothering to pretend to uh, cover their tracks. No attempts at what we would like to imagine international espionage is. Um, did the deed and and went home again. I mean, well, one of the other arguments as to why the finger did point at, at Russia is that perhaps Russia was just trying to test European unity over this or just what uh, the United Kingdom would do. Well, we expelled a few diplomats, a few of our European allies expelled a few diplomats. Russia continues to deny anything. So I'm not sure anything much has changed right now. Uh, Stephen, on the subject of that retribution, um, is Britain now obliged to act further? Because I'm very far from an expert in, in how these things are tabulated. But if we are at the place at which somebody fairly senior or people fairly senior in the Russian state have authorised military intelligence officers to carry out an assassination uh, on British soil, which, is, which has actually uh, accidentally killed a British citizen, very nearly killed two others. Uh, this is past the threshold at which you just toss somebody's embassy isn't it? It should be um, with with the evidence that they're now putting forward um, there should be greater retribution but of course what the Russians then do in return is they they carry out their own retribution, they not only expelled British diplomats when, uh, when we kicked 23 of their people out, uh, they also closed the uh, consulate in St Petersburg and the British Council which is a great shame because the British Council did wonderful work for ordinary Russian citizens um, but I think that our government now, having they've gone up another stage, I mean, um, there's got to be something else, whether it's just more diplomats closed, whether it's breaking off diplomatic relations, which, of course, would be a very serious step. Um, but I can't see that having pointed out so much evidence now that they can just turn around and say, oh, well, but, you know, that's it. Um, I would expect something else to happen. It may even go as far as dip breaking off diplomatic relations. Uh, Daniela, is the United Kingdom able to, or should the United Kingdom, I guess, be able to expect a certain measure of solidarity from what are still its European Union partners? Would it have any kind of um, improving effect on Russia's behaviour if, uh, you know, if, if similar gestures up to and including perhaps breaking off diplomatic relations were undertaken by lots of countries? Well, the short answer is no, really. <laughs> it comes as no surprise to learn that uh, Britain's credit, emotional, material credit with the European Union is, is fairly low. I think it was 18 countries dip, uh, expelled diplomats uh, after... Well, well, Worldwide it was 29. I mean, in the, in, in the European Union uh, was far from all of the... was far from a mass uh, show of, of solidarity and has been, as has been well documented, countries such as Germany have got very deep and involved uh, financial links with Russia. Russia's been very successful uh, at uh, doing that. That's one of its USPs. It's, Britain can expect very little right now, especially as we are in such an enormous mess. Uh, Theresa May is making a show of, uh, of strength and the evidence that she's presenting is very impressive. But then, of course, we also have the leader of the opposition who perhaps might be the next prime minister of this country, who... Uh, immediately after the Novichok attack said, well, we mustn't rush to judgment. We should give the Russians a chance to test this material as well. Just to be fair and talking to all sides because I've campaigned for, for peace all my life. Well, I can't imagine that the Russians are quaking in their boots thinking that uh, 
he might be the the leader of this country in two years' time? Probably not, I suspect. Uh, Let's move along now. There has always been something a bit weird and counterintuitive about corporations taking a stand on matters of social progress, even though it's difficult to say why it shouldn't be encouraged. Anyway, the German engineering firm Siemens has responded to recent dust-ups involving far-right yahoos in Chemnitz by urging its 4,000-odd employees to speak out against nationalist extremism. A letter to employees said it is time for civil society in the state to take a public stand promoting tolerance and humanity and against xenophobia and discrimination. This comes, of course, in the same way that Nike unveiled exiled NFL player Colin Kaepernick as its new face, prompting numbers of the hard of thinking to incinerate their own shoes in protest. Um, Daniela, what basically do we think of this? A, a large multinational corporation deciding it wants to be, you know, good? Well, I think it's a corporate social responsibility as ultimate virtue signalling. They're saying, oh, we're going to jump on this. Are we going to tell our 4,000 employees, be nice to migrants and just be nice to your fellow man and let's put the responsibility on you. I mean, let's detach this whole phenomenon from all the incredibly complex social uh, and economic issues that are roiling Europe at the the time. Um, It's a very little value and it's kind of a strange thing to do. I mean, that what was particularly troubling about the about the riots there was the fact that you had very far-right neo-Nazi groups making common ground with ordinary people who would deny that they were racist, but they would say, well, we're frightened and we're worried about the migrants and there's a rise in crime and all the other issues which people all over Europe are, are speaking out about. But it was this alliance which is the frightening thing. It's not about these ordinary uh, employees of Siemens somehow having a responsibility to break uh, a mass movement. Uh, so I think it's I think it's misplaced. Great PR maybe, but it's somewhat misplaced. Stephen, does a company and let's just talk about a company without getting into the specifics of any business practices of Siemens or indeed Nike? Does a company have to be sure that it itself is on absolutely uh, unconquerable moral high ground itself uh, before it takes a stand on this kind of thing? One would hope that they would be, but of course, um, the number of German companies, we've already mentioned German history once uh, this evening, but you know, a number of German companies, uh, if you look back in their history, um, you know, they, they have a rather dark past, particularly from the 1930s. You know, the one reason why um, you know, Hugo Boss uh, make wonderful suits, that's why the SS chosen to make their uniforms. Um, so moral high ground, German companies, um, slightly sort of dodgy ground. Um, I would have thought something like the company saying we hope none of our employees have taken part in these demonstrations is is a bit more realistic, you know. And instead of just saying, you know, oh, you know, don't 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 be racist, it's kind of a bit a bit vague. Um, if they'd come out and said, you know, if you're caught taking part in demonstrations and using racist uh, um, language and behaving in a vile way, uh, then we will consider your employment with us. That might be a bit more effective, I think. Or they could have considered sponsoring an, another nice uh, anti-fascist concert to. Uh, meet the respond to the uh, demonstrations. Uh, I'm sure far from the last demonstrations. It is. The, it does always end up uh, posing the question though of whether these actions by companies are principled or self-serving, and the further question of. Um, which I will put to you, Daniela, can it not be both? Because people have pointed out with Nike, for example, their endorsement or uh, unveiling of Colin Kaepernick as their, as their new face, people have pointed out that during his time uh, since being uh, apparently unhirable by any NFL club and 
this in a world in which Blake Bortles is still getting a start. Uh, his Mer- Kaepernick merchandise made by Nike has sold extremely well among the people who admire what Colin Kaepernick has done. Yeah, of course it can be both. Of course it can be both. And I think it's it's uh, ultimately it's a good thing that there is pressure on corporations to be involved, if whether it's in the local community and donating food to food banks or uh, having volunteer schemes or, or so on. But I think large corporations can make a substantive difference, for instance, in offering uh, hiring schemes for refugees or migrants outreach or working with students rather than just saying to their uh, employees, uh, we're, not just, we're not just paying you your wages, but we're also instructing you in your moral behaviour. I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a very good point. And you know, it's actually something a bit more practical, which is really useful. I, I know of a Russian bank, and they don't want me to say their name, uh, but a Russian bank in Russia, which actually regularly helps a children's home and an old people's home. Um, and they make no publicity. I just happen to know somebody who works there. It's how I got to know about it. Uh, they make no publicity out of this at all. So they get no PR, but... The, the children's home and the old people's home definitely uh, benefit a great deal from it and their, and their employees are encouraged to donate but it's all in-house um, and that you know that sort of thing I think is, is great when why companies don't, do that. Why don't they want the press? Because they're not doing it for, for PR. They're, do, they're doing it genuinely, genuinely because Russia has a lot of social problems at the moment and it's one little way of helping some people out of their, the hole that they're in. I suppose that is commendably selfless. Um, Daniela, in in the case of a a figure like Kaepernick or somebody in his position, if we look at it from the other way around, does he uh, weaken his own message if he's perceived as as taking the corporate shilling? No, I don't think so. I mean, it makes me feel slightly itchy the way that large corporations such as Nike have become part of the social structure, part of our, our culture. So they play a, a far greater role than purveyors of, of fine footwear. I mean, I'm not one for, for labels particularly, but I understand that they have a role to play. Uh, and they, they play a very, uh, a very fine game, you know, in the way that the, the mainstream media is very much maligned uh, as being part of the establishment. Some of these massive, massive brands still manage to, to retain their edge. And it was an incredibly clever choice by them because they kept their... A sense of edginess where they are actually shoe manufacturers, clothing manufacturers working on a massive scale. And they're getting a lot of free publicity from the Twitter feed of Donald Trump uh, inevitably as a consequence. But Stephen, is it, if we if we try and look for something basically positive here, is it is it heartening that a company such as Nike or such as Siemens or such as any other company that makes a similar decision it's partly going to be a business decision. So is it a, an encouraging thing that they have decided that liberalism, plurality, decency is actually where the dollars are? That is positive, yes, but I'd, I would say that's Because N- of... Nike would have known that we, we, we are going to get idiots setting fire to their shoes. That is definitely going to happen. They would have conceived of that. Yeah, and the people who suffer most are the people who then lose out on having a decent pair of running shoes. Especially um, if they didn't take them off first. <laughs> <laughs> Which some of Trump's supporters... No, no, we mustn't go there. Um, but, I'm, I'm um, amazed they tied the laces, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> Uh, but I, I still see, I'm afraid that the, 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 the cynic in me sort of comes down heavier on this one, that, that actually, be it Siemens, be it Nike, whatever, they, they 
can see a real PR advantage to this, and that's that's a part of modern business. And um, most people are going to say, "Oh, jolly good, you're taking a moral stand." We'll go and maybe we'll go and buy some Nike trainers to make up for the ones that are burnt. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, so I'm, I, you know, I, I'd say sort of. Um, Two cheers for Siemens on this one, um, not three cheers, because it's they're, they're, there's an edge to it that that is perhaps a little tasteless. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Daniela Pellet and Stephen DL. Coming up next, why your Uber passenger rating might leave you walking home in Australia and New Zealand. Monocle's Entrepreneurial September issue is jam-packed with advice, wisdom and heartening tales of the folks around the world who are building better businesses. We meet the startups pursuing careers in everything from sharpening up the stationary business to surfers helping recycle ocean plastic and mull over why starting older is sometimes better for business. And if the working world isn't for you, well, then there's a career in the French Foreign Legion to consider. Elsewhere, we discuss the late Francisco Franco's next move, visit a seemly startup space in Provence, and bed down in a Danish residence par excellence. We also take you on a design-minded tour of a Tokyo restaurant opening that you may well have heard about, and talk trainers with the man behind New Balance. We also sip wine in Kefalonia before a last meal with the Beiruti cookbook author Anissa Halu. The opportunity-filled September issue of Monocle is on all good newsstands now. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Mullister. With me are Daniela Pellet and Stephen DL. Now, for the purposes of researching our next item, I looked up for the first time in my life my Uber rating. I discovered that it is 4.4 of a possible five, which means two things. One, that Uber drivers are perhaps less appreciative of my learned insights into politics, sport and music than I had supposed. And two, that if I don't watch myself, I might be struggling for a ride home. In Australia and New Zealand, users whose rating from drivers drops below will be suspended from the service. The rule is already in force in the United States and will doubtless become so in the UK in due course. Um, Stephen, I did ask you earlier if you knew what your Uber rating was. You do not because you don't use it. I don't, I'm afraid. Uh, I get around London by tube. Um, am I allowed to say that um, Monocle, when I'm, if I'm on in the early morning programme or late night, uh, Monocle provides a vehicle, uh, but it's not Uber. That is um, true. But I... Um, I tend to I tend to chat to the drivers normally. Sometimes see, I'll, I think I'll, that's where I've been going wrong. Ah, uh, but um, but then but this company actually asks you to rate the driver. So Uber does that as, Uber does that as well. Ah, well uh, it, 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 it is a two way street. Danielle, do you, do you know what yours is? Um, well, I'm a bit scared to check. I imagine it was it was quite good until last Saturday when I, I took my six year old in the, in the back of an Uber and he proceeded to be copiously sick. Uh, luckily, having known that he'd been throwing up all day, I'd taken a plastic bag with me. So it wasn't too messy, but then I was trying to pretend to the uh, driver that, oh, what a surprise that he was sick. Oh, I had no idea this might happen. Uh, but six-year-olds are very good at grassing you up. So <laughs> no, so I'm, I am a bit worried. He was rather tight-lipped. Um, I think Unlike my, your son, clearly. Yes. Oh, so remind me. Uh, I think this the system of, of review and counter review. I mean, it's supposed to make us think that this is some sort of commune and we're all in it together and we all have a say. But I think it's a little bit more sinister than that because, as I understand it, Uber drivers, if they're not rated at four point seven out of five, then they can just lose their uh, their their right to drive with Uber, which is not always the friendliest of a of employer. Anyway, and uh, I'm not sure how you're supposed to rate your passengers. What I think any passenger that didn't do what my son 
did or wasn't isn't actually abusive or, or unpleasant gets a what gets a five out of five. I, I give I give drivers five stars if they basically just don't talk. That, that's that's <laughs> yeah, my... and get you to your destination. Exactly. So, sometimes you get an actively unpleasant driver, but. I mean, I don't think that the ratings make much difference. No, more serious. Basic, as long as they get me home alive, then that, that's a that's a five-star rating. I, I'm not terribly picky. Stephen, the question is, is is basically all of human life going to end up like this? I hope not. Uh, and because also, um, you know, as Daniela says, if, if you get a nasty driver, you know, then... Um, uh, was it you said about the nasty driver? Um, anyway, the, well, whoever you know, if someone, if someone, he might be having a bad day and he might exactly. just, you know, just not like the look of you or something... Maybe we should uh, so start. then, on what is he basing his judgment? Um, I, I find I find that whole concept rather odd, to be honest. I, I'll stick to the tube. Maybe we should start having instituting such a system for these programs. You know, I, I, I... you get five <laughs> out of five. Andrew. I'd give him six actually. Six but but, out of five, but yeah. the thing is that there is a proliferation of of such systems, like you know those sort of. And I was just going to ask both of you if you'd seen any notably stupid sort of opportunities or suggestions that you rate a particular experience. I'm I'm quite mesmerised by the ones. Since airport toilets, for some reason, there's a sort of like number of buttons you can press to rate your experience in an airport. To- I mean, like, it's just like you know, how 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 good is it going to have been, really? You know what I do in those circumstances? I tut. That's what I do. That's my form of rating. Just tut very loudly. But I, but I, I don't know if that if that's recorded that's, and no, interpreted for for, for yeah, posterity. That's my way, though. Yeah. Well, I mean, not just airport toilets. Indeed, airport security as well. Often you go through. If you look, you'll see. You know, you ha- you're asked to tap. Is it a smiley face? Is it a straight face? Or is it a frowny face? To say how did we do? Um, most places you'd probably just have a frowny face actually. Apart from Gatwick Airport, go through Gatwick Airport. They're the nicest people on security there. But um, so you, yeah. you, you're always careful to tap the smiley face at Gatwick Airport. Actually, it's... I don't tap any of them, but I have noticed them, uh, and they are very friendly at Gatwick. I think maybe if I analyse this a little bit, perhaps speaks to this kind of human need for wanting to be heard. You read TripAdvisor reviews of restaurants on hotels and some of them seem just an opportunity for people to vent. You know, listen to me, I'm here. I'm, I had this experience and I'm going to tell you about it and I have power and I have agency. So I'm not quite sure how reliable they are. In my experience, trip, you know, these, these TripAdvisor and other sort of review websites have absolutely no relation to reality at all yet i still look at them they do in some cases i think when they reach a a certain critical mass of consensus opinion and this is where i do commend our listeners as soon as they're finished listening to this to go to TripAdvisor and look up the page of an establishment called sashes which is a hotel in manchester Uh, i i assure you that what you find there will keep you amused for at least the next hour or so there there is a contribution of mine on there somewhere which is the only TripAdvisor review i've ever posted but i felt I felt inspired. It's it's also one of only two hotels in my life I've been checked into by forces beyond my control, taken one look at and just gone, nope, absolutely no way. Um, have either of you ever, I did want to ask, fallen foul of any such rating? Are, are, are either of you, and I'll ask you first, Stephen, as far as you know, actually, have ever, ever been bounced by some corporate entity who has decided that... They will not do business with you anymore. Never, never been bounced, but um, we did stay in an Airbnb in New Jersey this summer, uh, and we were not impressed to turn up and find that the last people's sheets were still on the bed, their towels were damp and hanging over the edge of the, uh, the wash basket. Shocking. Um, and so we lost a few hours because we had to do the washing before we could actually stay there. And then at the end of the stay, we, we were two hours later leaving the apartment than we were supposed to, and the guy turned up. 
Um, and he complained to Airbnb that we were late leaving. And we just thought, oh, forget it. You know, you're not even worth bothering with. But um, I don't think we've been banned by Airbnb. But that, that was, that was a, it left a rather nasty taste in the mouth. But that's as, as close as it's been. And Daniela, other than Uber, obviously, oh, well, are, are, you, say, are you on I, any blacklists? I was going to say I haven't taken an Uber since Saturday. So <laughs> let's just leave that hanging. I don't want to jinx anything. OK, well, finally tonight to Mont Blanc, the imaginatively named snow-capped Alp. As of next year, a limit will be imposed on the bemusingly large numbers of people whose idea of fun is climbing up a thing which they will then have to climb back down. This summer season, upward of 300 people a day have attempted the ascent, which is not a trivial undertaking. 16 of those people have been killed. There have also been high-altitude squabbles and scuffles between climbers getting in each other's way. So the number of climbers will henceforth be limited to 214, weirdly arbitrary number, every day. Um, d- does, as far as either of you are concerned, does this make a difference to your immediate travel plans? Were you, were you planning a, a Conquest of Blanc. I thought it was a kind of cake. So that we're, 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 you think everything's a kind of cake, though, in fairness. Um, so that, 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 that's a, that's a no from Daniela State Stephen. No, I have been on the mountain, but uh, in the winter and skiing. Um, okay, and uh, you don't have to go too high up if it's a good winter. Um, the higher you go, the more difficult it does get. Uh, my wife, who's a far better skier, did go much higher than I to, to ski, um, but. Um, uh, it does. It, it, it. I mean, all joking apart, the idea of sixteen people having died in one summer seems rather a lot. And, Th- there and are apparently just a lot of people thinking that this is an outing you can undertake with, you know, a pair of hiking boots and a stick. Well, some apparently wearing trainers as well. Which, I mean, I think that is. I think there's, it's not only a question of limiting numbers, but actually, before people are allowed to go up, there they ought to be some way of of actually making sure they're educated in this sort of thing because it's. Um, um, mountain. I know it sounds like a cliche, but you know mountains are dangerous places, and and the weather can change dramatically on any mountain. Um, you know, suddenly fog can come in. Even in the, in the summer, fog can come in, or it can start raining, and you can lose uh, your bearings very easily. Um, so I think that you know there is actually a serious side to this um, that, um, that, that 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 they need to limit the numbers. As you say, two hundred fourteen is a very odd number. But well, also, it's, it's literally an even number, but I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I take your point. I mean, there is a, a wider question here about uh, tourism limits, uh, because tourism does operate under that weird paradox that one of the things that tourists most value when they go to a place is a lack of other tourists. It's, it's akin to being the person sitting in a traffic jam complaining about all the traffic. You are part of the problem. But there, there, are, there are places in the world which have started to at least think about ways to limit visitors. Daniela, is, is that a thing that should happen or should the market basically decide? Because there does come a point at which people don't want to go to a place because people are already going to it. I'd quite like them to limit the number of tourists allowed to ask me where Amy Winehouse's statue is <laughs> every time I try and go to Camden Sainsbury's. But look, absolutely, I mean, I, we are going to have to and they do have to. And you go to cities, like, it's become a very fashionable thing to talk about how cities like Barcelona have been ruined, ruined, I tell you, by, by mass tourism. Uh, and we want to keep these lovely places for ourselves. But the fact is, you have to uh, put limits, I think, not just to keep the, it's not just about the ambience of the place or even the the environment, but just allow people to live there. 
you know, if all of your rental property and your, uh, is being snapped up by people wanting to let it to tourists and so on and so forth, then the city, what made the city worth visiting uh, in the first place, kind of disappears. And just, that's to be said for Barcelona and quite a few other places as well. It doesn't stop people going, though, does it, Stephen? Because there, there are places I can think of which are basically just enormous theme parks of themselves. It, it, it all gets a bit meta when you're there. It does, and I think one of the bigger problems, and um, bigger than bigger than Mont Blanc, we might say, as a problem, uh, are these huge, great, huge, great cruise liners um, that, particularly sailing down the Adriatic coast, and the, the Croatians have been upset. And um, uh, last year, I was in Montenegro, and the, the city of Kotor um, every day had a had a huge cruise liner come in, and 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 it was almost like a, a kind of comedy sketch that these people would sort of rush off and and go to. The shops and of course the shopkeepers didn't mind because they were selling tats not. to them yeah um uh, but then suddenly you know you'd hear this horn blast at about midday or one o'clock uh, and the tourists would all kind of look up and go oh you know it was, it was a, and, and like a pavlovian response they'd all rush back to the ship and then it would sail off again um what does worry me is is if they are damaging historic places you know and that that's that is the uh, yes, I accept. You know, the, the people who live there um, might not like the ambiance being spoilt, but on the other hand, a lot of them are re- reliant on them for making a living and selling them their tacky souvenirs. But um, if if the fabric of the place starts to suffer, particularly if they're old, ancient towns, then that's that's worrying. That, that I think they they should be dealing with. But it's funny enough, I was in Kotor just a couple of weeks ago, and it's still really rather lovely. Um, but the reason is, is people describe it as the new Dubrovnik because Dubrovnik uh, is actually horrible and is not even a nice place to visit now. And so the hordes have kind of moved a little bit further along to Kota. And that's how the process continues. And it's just not really sustainable. Well, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Daniela Pellard and Stephen Diel, thanks for joining us at Midori House. It was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Anna Savetska. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900, The Entrepreneurs. More on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. I'm back with Midori House at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. For now, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. 